It'd be great if you could turn uh, back to Zephaniah. I think it was page 945. If it wasn't, I said last week, the easiest way to find Zephaniah is from the New Testament backwards. So you find yourself in some Gospels, a hand up towards Matthew, you'll nip into Malachi, then you'll probably find a bit of Haggai, and then Zechariah, something like that, and then you'll end up in Zephaniah. There might be Haggai, might be between Zechariah and Zephaniah. The, the minor prophets regularly change place in my Bible. I don't know if you find that. You think you've got them sussed, and then Obadiah changes place again. Let me pray as we come to God's word together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are the gracious God, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and slow to anger, the God who is steadfast in love towards your people, a love demonstrated fully and finally in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we come to your word again, your word of challenge, your word about judgment, we pray that we would not forget who you are and that like a loving father speaking to his children, we would respond knowing that you only want the best for us and that therefore by the power of your spirit, you'd be transforming us into the people you'd have us be. For Jesus' name's sake, amen. Now, how do you respond to being rebuked, to being told off? I guess, I guess most of us hate that experience, don't they, of someone challenging us. And in my, in my book, it's even worse when the person's right. You know, when you haven't got a leg to stand on. You know, when, when someone you love, a mate, a friend, they just take you aside and, and they say, look, Daph, you, you really shouldn't have done that. And, and there's that, I think it's a, it's a tangible, really, emotional experience uh, of thinking, am I going to admit it or not? There's a fight, and sometimes it's, a, it's accompanied by real physical pain. You sort of feel the guilt, the shame, the fear, the anguish, the anger, your self-righteousness all at once, and you have a moment of decision, don't you? There's always a moment of decision. Um, you, might, you might know this if you've been married. There's always that moment of decision. You've, you've set off on the argument. <laughs> and, and after a couple of moments, you've realized they're right and you're wrong. And you're, you're faced with that decision. Do you admit it? Or do you just keep going for it? And hope that you'll wear them down by attrition and they'll just give in. So, so how do you respond to being rebuked? To someone taking your side and saying, no, actually, you've got to change that. Because last week, we saw in Zephaniah chapter 1 that the Lord God had a word of rebuke, a word of correction for his people. It was a stark warning to a complacent people. It was a warning that they needed. And I think I said last week it was a warning that we needed. Because Judah in the day of the prophet Zephaniah, I think is remarkably like the church in the West today. A place of comfort. A place that didn't really think that God was going to do anything exceptional in the future, one way or another. A place that looked for security in their wealth and their homes. And do you remember that in Zephaniah 1? Let me read you verse 12 and 13 again. This is the Lord saying what he'll do to the city of Jerusalem in Judah. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think... The Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. I have to say that over the last few weeks, I think I've had a, a similar experience without the necessarily horrifying immediate reality that Angie's had. You looked out at the world events. 
Yes, events that happen in some countries every single week, but have just happened in our country a little bit too close for comfort. And you think, what hope is there in the world other than the gospel? What hope is there for people other than Jesus Christ? And if Jesus Christ is the only hope in the world, therefore I need to take him a lot more seriously than I do. And I say that not, you know, as a pastor wanting to emphasize you. I say that being honest with you. I, your pastor, need to take him a lot more seriously than I do. And then I've been challenged by God's word in Zephaniah. As I was saying last week, if this is true, if what God says here is true, then I need to take Jesus far more seriously than I do. Because I think very often, day in, day out, I live as though God's never really going to do anything particularly radically different in my lifetime. It's just going to potter on quite pleasantly in sunny Chessington till I collect the pension that you're generously paying me and serve slightly less intensely the Lord Jesus. Till I die happily, peacefully in my sleep. What am I going to do with the rebuke in Zephaniah that I heard last week? It's no good being complacent. Just to remind you, maybe if you weren't here last week, where we are in the history of God's people. Uh, the young king Josiah is on the throne. He's a reformer. It's probably between 638 and 628 BC. These are real events. Josiah's granddad was the evil idolatrous Manasseh, and he was followed by the equally bad dad Ammon. And in Manasseh's reign, the Lord had said to Judah, you've gone too far. You are so evil, I am going to send judgment upon you. We know that happens in 596 and 586 as the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar come and destroy Jerusalem. That is in the future. We know that's going to happen. I guess the first readers of Zephaniah might have known that is going to happen. They were probably reading the book after the event. And the question is, how will Zephaniah's people, the people in Jerusalem and Judah, get ready in the face of this certain judgment to come. Now we have to remember that the people Zephaniah is speaking to are the people of God. They're the people who've had God's promises over the centuries. They're the people who God has demonstrated his love to again and again. The people who he's stuck with despite their repeated rejection and rebellion. The people who he has shown faithful, steadfast love to. That's who Zephaniah is speaking to. There's judgment to come. And last week, he warned that that judgment was for their complacency. And this week, he's going to say, what should be your response? And we've got the application first tonight. It's great. You can nod off after point one. We're going to see the application. What's your response? The second thing, the reasons. Why respond like that? And then thirdly, we're going to see the result in the life of Judah. And ask ourselves, what will be the result for us? So so here's the response. And the Lord says, gather and seek. Have a look at Zephaniah 2 verse 1. Gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation. Now, I don't know if you know this, but throughout the Bible, God is actually gathering a people. It's not just about your personal relationship with God. It's about a people gathered together. And of course, in the Old Testament, that is the people of Israel descended from Abraham. And now all that's left in Zephaniah's days is the rump of the nation, the southern kingdom of Judah. And they are a shameful nation. But it's important to to see that the Lord calls his people to gather together in repentance. So the Lord's gathering a people today. It's called the church. He's gathering them around his son, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. In, in fact, the word we translate as church in our New Testament, the Greek word ecclesia, just means gathering. And that's important as we think about how we repent and we respond to God's challenge because we do that corporately. You see, I belong to you and you belong to me. We are a gathered people. And it's about how we're going to respond. Now, the cry of the church should be the cry of the American Marines. I don't know if this is true or not. Our aim should we be this. We leave no one behind. We're a gathered people. The Lord says, gather together and seek. Why? Verse 2. Before the decree takes effect and that day passes like wind-blown chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. You see, the righteous anger of God is going to blow like, like husks on the hurricane through God's people. And the warning comes three times, doesn't it? Before, before, before. Gather before it's too late. It might not be very fashionable. In fact, it is decidedly unfashionable in the church to call people to respond to God in the light of his dreadful judgment to come. It's not very fashionable, but it is very biblical. And just in case you think this is some strange Stone Age idea from the Old Testament, actually the Lord Jesus tells some of the frightening, most frightening stories about the need to repent before he returns to judge. At the end of a a story he tells, a parable about masters and servants, he says this with a chilling warning for, for the servant who lives as though his master is never going to come back and hold him to account. Jesus says in Luke twelve forty six, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he is not aware of, he will gather, cut him to pieces, and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Presumably he thought he was a believer but he suffers punishment as one who isn't. Gather before it's too late. Help one another. Three challenges, before, before, before. And in verse 3, there comes a threefold response. What are you to do when you gather? Verse 3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you'll be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Seek the Lord. You see, the starting point of of returning to God, of repentance, is always relational. We seek the Lord. We come back to our God. It's always personal between us and God. Because we don't don't just believe in a, a philosophy. We don't believe in a set of rules for life, a sort of code of conduct. We don't believe in a, a religious ritual that we have to perform each week. We believe in the living God. A personal God who's revealed himself fully and finally and intimately in his son, Jesus Christ, a man. It is always personal between us and God. And therefore, the first thing we need to do is we, we are ashamed of our complacency is seek him. Turn to him. It's about our heart. It's, it's about our loves. It's about who we want to know better. Do you want to know the Lord? Seek the Lord. And because, of course, he is the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, the incredible thing is that we are to seek the very one we've offended. We're to come to the one who's coming in wrath. And we can do so because we know his gracious character to us. We call on him intimately in prayer. I think it would be a great mark of our corporate prayer meeting. We've, we've done this a couple of times before. If actually we're there seeking the Lord relationally, intimately, 
wanting to know him better as, as much as bringing him a shopping list of all that we need to do. It's what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, isn't it? He said, I count all things rubbish compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I want to know Christ. Seek the Lord. And any relationship is about, uh, of true love is about wanting to please the person, isn't it? So you seek the Lord and then you seek righteousness. You seek his way. See, obedience and love are always bound together in the Bible. Because God loves you, you want to obey him, and and the way that you love him is by being obedient. Obedience and love can't be separated. And so seek his righteousness. In other words, seek his just and good way of life, the way that's right before him. And you see, that won't come naturally to you. You're not... You know, God's people don't wake up one morning and think, right, now I'm just going to live righteously. You have to seek it, desire it, want it. That's a a decision not to to drift around adopting the values of of the nations around. That was the problem of Zephaniah's day. Do you remember that from last week? They just wanted to fit in with everyone else. They just wanted to look like everyone else. They really couldn't spot them from the pagans apart from once a week they turned up at the temple. But, But everything else was the same. And so seek righteousness. Live distinctively in relationship with your God. And because the heart of of our self-rule, of our sin, is is our pride, that the fact that we really think that that we are the center of the universe, would you see the third thing there to do? There to seek humility. Again, humility is not something you acquire. It's something you have to strive for, to ask for, to want. It's one of the most dangerous prayers to pray. Lord, please humble me. Quite often he does. But, but the humble person is the person who's quick to admit their failure. Quick to be willing to say sorry. Quick to offer forgiveness to others. Quick to see that it is only because God is compassionate and gracious that they can come to him. Quick to submit their life to his rule. Did you see the challenge to complacency? Before, before you see the Lord face to face, seek him that you might know him better. Seek righteousness. Live in a way that shows that you love him. Seek humility. Bow the knee before him and admit that you need him above all else. But because true relationship with God is always seen in transformed living. Not, not just mental or verbal assessment to, to a set of beliefs, but a life that seeks to live out that relationship of love. Not, not a perfect life. No, no, it's not in any way a life that tries to earn God's love. Throughout the, the history of Israel, throughout the history of Judah, there's no way they could have claimed they were trying to earn God's love. No, that was freely given. But a life that responds to God's love genuinely. And it's the same for us in Christ. A life lived out by the power of the Spirit that shows that we have been loved and we want to love him in return. It's like any human relationship, isn't it? I've just been away for a few days with uh, Boo, my wife. And uh, can can you imagine, you know, if if last Sunday I'd sweetly serenaded her, I've sung a few songs to her. Um, I did that on the weekends. But then I sort of largely ignored her during the week. 
and, and then I didn't do things that I knew she'd like me to do. And then when she pointed out to me that actually I was, I was being a bit selfish and unkind, I simply told her, well, I'm, I'm just going to do what I want anyway because you're my wife. It's your job to love me. That's what you do. You're my wife. And so often that, that's what we say about God. Oh, you're God. You're gracious. It's your job to love me. I'll just get on and do what I want anyway. Whereas when you first fall in love, you, you, you just want to please the other person. You just want to be with the other person. You want to know the other person. You want to live in a way that, that is attractive to the other person. You, you're humble with the other person. That is a genuine loving relationship, isn't it? See, true relationship with the Lord is always worked out in a changed life. But, but there is a difference between us today and, and those of Zephaniah's day. It comes at the end of verse 3. Did, did you see the end of verse 3? You see, this is what the Lord says to them. Perhaps you'll be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. They didn't know if when the Babylonians came, they actually would suffer God's wrath or not when they responded. But we do know, we do know that actually we will not suffer the righteous anger of God that we deserve. Because we've already seen a day when the Lord's anger has been poured out. And it was not on us. It was poured out upon himself in the person of his son. We've seen that day that Angie talked about, that darkest day, the day of the cross when the sky went black and God himself bore our punishment in our place. We know that we have confidence in the face of God's coming righteous anger. So Paul can say to the Thessalonians that they're waiting for Jesus who rescues them from the coming wrath. We're we're secure in that. Now, do you think that should make you more or less ashamed of your complacency? Do you think that knowledge of a certain unshakable future should mean that we, we seek to know the Lord less? Because, I mean, why should we bother? Do you think that actually that means that unchangeable love of God that we're utterly secure in, that status we have in Christ, should lead us to take righteousness less seriously? Do you think that the knowledge that all our sin has been born on the cross, that we can look at the Son of God butchered for us in love, and that should make us less humble? Or should it mean we seek humility more day in, day out? How do you know you're truly amongst the Lord's people? Because daily your life is focused on his gathered people with whom you're seeking the Lord and you're seeking to live out his righteousness and you're seeking to live humbly as a sinner solely saved by grace who submits submits to his word. The writer of the Hebrews put something very similar in his letter. Hebrews 10 says this, Hebrews 10, 23, it's on the screen behind me. He challenges the Hebrews and says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, or you could put seek righteousness, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Gather together but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. That's the heartbeat of the Christian. 
the person who sees the day approaching and gathers together with his brothers and sisters in Christ and says, let's go for it. There's nothing more serious than this. Seeking the Lord, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. But but if you're going to do that, you've got got to see what what the future holds. And that's what Zephaniah does. He, He outlines next this glorious future. You see, that's the response. Will you gather and seek the Lord together? Here, here's the reason. Judgment and blessing, that's the future. Judgment and blessing. Because to enjoy a future peace, actually your enemies have to be removed. To enjoy a world of righteousness, evil has to be destroyed. That, that evil that Angie talked about experiencing has to be taken out of the world if the future is going to be one where we enjoy peace and safety. Now, I don't think we engage with that emotionally because we live in the place we do at the time we do. We're not living through a war. There might be some people who got the tail end of the Second World War here, but we've not lived through a war. We don't, we don't go to bed at night listening to gunfire or shells falling. We don't fall asleep Wondering whether this will be the night they come and take us away to kill us. Many brothers and sisters, many Christians across the world live tonight in that experience. And they are longing for a day when they will know peace. But we don't feel that. We just presume that Chessington's going to go on for eternity. Well, we live like that anyway. But it's not. And wonderfully, the Lord has promised his people a future of peace and safety. That's what he does in verses 4 onwards in chapter 2. What he does is a tour of Judah's historic enemies. This isn't actually literal because some of these places like Philistia, the Philistines, don't exist in Zephaniah's day. What he's doing is he's going to the west and the east and the north and the south and he's saying, I'm going to take all your enemies out and defeat them. There's going to be judgment, but but there's also blessing. So, So the Philistines are first in the west Uh, Look what he says in in verse 5. Woe to you who live by the sea, you Kerethite people. Woe to the Lord. The word of the Lord is against you, Canaan, the land of the Philistines. He says, I will destroy you and none will be left. And when God speaks, it happens. And after they've gone, after the Lord has wiped the slate clean, look what happens next in verse 6. The land by the sea will become pastures, having wells for shepherds and sheepfolds for flocks. The land will belong to the remnant of the people of Judah. There they will find pasture in the evening. They will lie down in the houses of Ashkelon. The Lord their God will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. The Lord welcomes in to to this new created paradise in the land of their enemies, his people. And like a a sheep, they're they're cared for. And he himself is with them, looking after them. It, It happens again and again. There's Moab and Ammon to the east. Look at verse 8. I've heard the insults of Moab and the torts of the Ammonites who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Well, arrogance against God and his people is always foolish. Their cities are destroyed. Their lands are given to God's people. Look at verse 10. This is what they will get in return for their pride, for their insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The Lord will be awesome to them, When he destroys all the gods of the earth, distant nations will bow down to him, all of them in their own lands. There's not a a false god in the world that won't be smashed. No corner of the earth where the rule of God will not be fully established. 
you'll turn on the news and Libya will be full of Christians. And Papua New Guinea will be full of Christians. And Australia will be full of Christians. And Iceland will be full of Christians. In fact, everyone, everywhere will be a Christian. The whole world. And then Kush to the south, it gets short shrift in verse 12. Before then, the recent enemy of God's people, Assyria, to the north feels the full force of God's wrath. Look over the page at verse 15 with me. This is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one and there is none besides me. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. It's actually an ironic misquote. Some of you might recognize a famous verse from Isaiah 46. This is what the Lord said in Isaiah 46 verse 8. Remember this, keep it in mind, take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those long ago. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Assyria, they're not God. See, God won't be mocked. Assyria humbled, powerless. And do you know what they were? Every single empire that has stood in the face of God has gone. In fact, all human power in history comes and goes, but the Lord's will continues forever. Look back. Empires that, that have ruled great sections of the world that have terrified people. The Roman Empire, Nazi Germany, the British Empire, communism in Eastern Europe. History shows us humans' purposes never stand. Whereas God, his purposes never fail. And on the day Zephaniah is talking about here, all human pride is laid low. All human self-rule and arrogant dismissiveness of God is ended. The day when all the mocking and scoffing will stop. And on that day, the Lord's people will inherit a world that has been wiped clean. It's talked about in the New Testament. The day when every tongue will say, Jesus is Lord. The day when every knee will bow before him. For many, the horror of bowing the knee to the one they've rejected who's come as their judge. For many, the beauty of bowing the knee in worship to the one who they know is their beautiful saviour. It's the day that all God's people will be vindicated, seem to be right. Again, listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and see how similar it is. As God promises his people that they will be blessed and his enemies will be judged. And this towards the end of the New Testament. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you've believed our testimony to you. Did you see what he's saying? There'll be judgment on all of God's enemies, all those who persecuted my people. And yet you, you'll be vindicated. You'll be seen as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ that that actually your faith was well-placed and you'll glory and marvel at the Lord Jesus as he returns. 
And now, do you believe in that day? Did you believe in the day that Zephaniah 2 talks about? I asked the same question last week. Because it's the day when not just all the promises of God will be fulfilled, but they will be experienced. That they will be felt. The day when we will know the Lord as we are known. The day when we will be as righteous as he is righteous. The day when we will be exalted from our position of humble sinners to rule over a perfected new creation with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, we often live in, in the light of what the future holds, don't, don't we? You know, we plan accordingly. Maybe you're, you're planning your summer holiday now and you think you've only got a few weeks. I put the tent up in the garden this week, not been up for seven years, got to use it this summer. Thought, I thought I'd better put it up, check it works. We plan in the light of the future. That's a sensible thing to do. That makes sense, doesn't it? I, I, many of you will have been talking to John Tilson over, over the last few weeks since he has had his diagnosis of cancer. And many of you will know that actually the last set of news has not been good for John. And he will talk openly. That is changing the way he's thinking about his future. It's changing what his priorities are, who he wants to spend time with. Because when you, you have an illness that's very serious, that, that he knows is terminal then suddenly things fall into a bit of perspective, don't they? You know we're all terminal, don't you? And we're, we're all terminal. But actually, even more than that, history is terminal. There is a day. And it's near, and we, we don't know when it is. And the question that Zephaniah is demanding is, is if this is where history is heading, if this is when it will all be over, if this is near and it could be any day, is that planning, is that, are we planning our, our present in the light of that certain future? Because if we are, we'll do a simple thing. We'll seek the Lord now. We'll want to know him better. Because then we'll see him face to face. And we'll seek righteousness now, because then we'll be made perfect even as he is. And we'll seek humility now, because then we'll truly realize how awesome and extraordinary and gracious and loving our God is. We'll live today in the light of that day. Many of you have heard me say before, actually, there are only two days in the Bible that matter. Today and the day. And the day is the day that should govern what we do today. Because the day might be tomorrow. See, will you, will you organize your life around this glorious future? What will be your response? That, that's the last thing to look at briefly, the result. Because sadly, the result in Judah, well, it wasn't great. Do you, what if you saw the shock in chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2? Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. And, and we're thinking, yeah, this must be another pagan nation. And then at the end of verse 2... She does not draw near to her God. No, we're in Jerusalem. We're in the heart of God's people. And she won't change. She won't accept it. She won't listen to anyone who suggests she might need to change. Not even the Lord. It's his word that she's rejecting. It's a very dangerous thing to, to harden your heart when the, when the Lord speaks words of warning to you. Oh, she's too busy to change. Did you see her leaders? They were self-interested. That's the way they're described. They're like savage animals devouring their own people. They're prophets. They can't be trusted to speak the truth. Their priests don't preach God's law. 
And I'd love to say, that, well, those are characteristics unique to Zephaniah's day, but actually they've plagued the church throughout history. They've plagued the church today. And God's people are, are supposed to mirror him, but actually their lives are in total contrast to the God they say that they love. Look at verse 5. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice. And every new day, he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. See, rather than being like their God, they're not even ashamed by the ways that they fail to live like his character. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, they knew, verse 6, was true, that God had destroyed nations and demolished strongholds, that they'd seen the way he'd laid waste to their enemies throughout their history, And that's why verse 7 is such a heartfelt plea. Do you see this? This is the Lord speaking. Of Jerusalem I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. That's God's longing for his rebellious people. That's his purpose in giving this word of warning. Surely they'll hear me. And accept correction. I mean, maybe you've, you've been in that situation, if you're a parent, where you, you think, I'm sure that I've absolutely given the logical watertight reasoning as to why my child should see that I am asking something that is entirely normal. But they don't. Surely you'll hear me and accept correction. It's why Jesus warns his followers again and again to be ready for his return. He longs that we take his word seriously. You see, God's word is the way that he convicts and corrects his chosen people. And the question is, what will we do? What will be the result of hearing his correction? Now, we could excuse ourselves. We could refuse to change. We could claim that, well, because of God's grace, we don't need to change. But grace is never a response Never an excuse not to respond to our loving Heavenly Father's warning. See, grace is the heart-changing love of God. And God's grace to us in Christ should mean that even more than the people of Zephaniah's day, when, when we think about our own complacency in the way that we live, not in the light of the day we will see Jesus face to face, but we live like the pagan world around us, it should cut us to the quick even more. As people of grace, we surely should hear what the Lord says when he says, surely you'll hear me and accept correction. The worst bit about being a minister is watching people drift away. It's the real heartache. See, seeing people often listen to the Lord and, and, and start seemingly to follow him and then just slowly drift away. It's very rare that people... Pack in the Christian life in a moment. Sometimes they do. It's usually due to a, a wrong sexual relationship. It's the primary reason people suddenly bend the gospel. It is morally inconvenient. But, but what happens quite often is people just slowly drift away. And it, it's heartache. It's miserable. Often you're going to see them. You'll warn them. I, I can think of people I've, I've worked with, people I've served the Lord Jesus with, who are now nowhere with Christ. And the reason it's miserable is that they all have names. They're real people, people you've loved. And if we are to be those who take this seriously, if we are to gather together as God's people and to seek him together, then we must treat people today in the light of the day. 
You see, by definition, those probably who most need to hear this might well not be here tonight. Maybe some of you are, but most won't be. But, but you know them. You see, I, I fear that there are many people who we know who profess the name of the Lord Jesus who actually show very little evidence in their lives that they're genuinely following him. People on the fringes of our church who think they're safe, but actually might fall into that category of complacent. So let me ask you, will you, will you help them? Will you help me help them? And will you personally seek the Lord with me? In a world that's increasingly going to reject you for doing that? Just on the news today, Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham, was receiving a torrid heap of abuse. He wants to go to the Winter Gardens in Blackpool, that some of us will know well, where Billy, Big Billy, preached. Um, I've listened to the tape from the Winter Gardens in Blackpool of Big Billy preaching. He wants to go and preach where his dad preached. They're, they're thinking of not letting him. Because, of course, he's an evangelical, Bible-believing Christian. And that makes you hated in our culture. Will you seek the Lord in a world that's going to despise you for doing so? Or will you seek his righteousness? I was listening to the Radio 4. I must stop listening to the BBC. It's very bad for my blood pressure. (laughs) Radio 4 comedy show on Friday night, utterly mocking people who could think that sex was for between a man and a woman in marriage. Will you seek righteousness in a world that may well deny you promotion or take your job from you if you do so? And, of course, the cry of our world is be happy in who you are. You've got a right to live the way you want. Will you seek humility in a world that tells you that guilt's an unhealthy emotion and really you just want to relax and be happy with yourself? Will you seek humility and admit you're not the person that God calls you to be, but he loves you enough to send his son to die for you despite that? Will you seek humility? Because I can tell you now, if we seek the Lord and we seek his righteousness and we seek humility, life is not going to get easier for us. But on the day, on the day, then we will see that actually we have done the right thing before our gracious God. Verse 8 is chilling, isn't it? Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify, I've decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms and pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. See, that day is coming. And the rest of Zephaniah is a beautiful description, maybe the most beautiful description in the Bible about how God has saved us from what we deserve on that day. But will you live today in the light of that day and seek the Lord? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you you know how you've been doing business with me and there have been many days this week when it's as though I hadn't heard your voice at all. Please forgive me. 
and our Father in heaven. These things are either true or untrue. Your word is either true or untrue. And if they're true, please really write them on our hearts that we might seek you, our gracious and loving Lord, the one who's revealed yourself so beautifully in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we might long to live for you and seek righteousness. And we might long to be humble before you. And that that would be our life today, that we might bring honor and glory to your name as we look to the day when you will rid the world of all evil and exalt your son and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of his name. Amen.